So just feel yourself really um, on the cushion or on your chair. If you're in a chair, put your feet flat on the floor. Be aware of your body contact with the cushion or the chair and also with the floor. And bring your attention to your breath. Just allowing the mind to settle again, even after this short break. Get a little stirred up. So we'll bring the mind back to the breath to allow everything to settle. So pick a spot either at the nostrils, upper lip, where you can feel the air moving in and out, or at the belly, where the breath rises and falls. Just pick one of those. And uh, let that be the place where your mind rests and returns to, to really examine breathing. And then if your mind wanders, when you notice, just come back to the breath. So we'll do that for a few minutes.
we'll take a moment to set our motivation. And if we observe our own mind and body at this moment, we can see that just taking a few minutes to allow our minds to settle has a great effect on the peacefulness of our being. And we don't have to imagine very hard to realize that when we take the opportunity to do that for ourselves, the people around us also get some benefit. Calmer, kinder, more connected with our um, aspirations and the values we really cherish of love and compassion and so forth. Take a moment and just imagine how it would be if every single living being had the opportunity to um, discover a peaceful place in their own mind and heart. What kind of world would we live in then? absence of violence, of anger, of greed. Imagine how that would be. This is the potential of every single living being. However, right now, not everyone has the opportunity to um, experience or explore that. Right now, not everyone has the inclination to even want to do that. But all things have come together that for us, in this room, right now, for a little while, we can. So let's set as our motivation, uh, aspiration to do our sharing today, to listen to this talk, have lunch, discuss together, and so forth. Holding in the back of our mind this really larger possibility, cultivating a heart and mind that is at complete peace, completely cleansed and purified of all our negativities. And that we do this to plant the seeds for this to awaken in us. To plant the seeds so that we might be able to lead all beings to that state. So set that as a motivation.
a lovely thought, isn't it? Yeah, so nice. Our topic today is impermanence and suffering. Do people know that? Yeah? I was like, who will come to a talk called Impermanence and Suffering? <laughs> oh yeah, Kathy raised her hand, good. Um, when, we, when we pick this, of course, we're drawing from this book by Venerable Tripton Children, our founder and abbess, Buddhism for Beginners, and it's the name of the chapter. So of course we would you know, go along and call it Impermanence and Suffering, but when I looked at it, I was writing a press release for this, I was looking at it going, oh, we might have found another name. But, um, so it's, it's great that people came knowing that that's what it was about today. Um, I wanted to give this talk because I find um, these two topics, impermanence and um, suffering, really very rich and joyful in my mind. So that's what I wanted to share about today. So Medical Children starts this chapter with this question. Buddhism talks a lot about impermanence, death, and suffering. Isn't such an approach to life unhealthy and pessimistic? Well, that's kind of the approach of our whole culture, isn't it? Let's don't think about death too much. Let's don't think about suffering too much. Oh, impermanence, well, yeah, things change. I don't like it, but let's don't think about it too much. You know, in our, our whole, um, well, it's, it is part of being our, our human condition. It's part of our condition to be uh, kind of blind to these things. But I think it's also particularly um, consumerist society builds on that, and then maybe Americans even more. You know, I mean, a, a country where... Um, you know, the, the answer to dealing with our grief over the Twin Towers being crashed was to go shopping, right? I mean, that was, go shopping, you'll feel better. But we do that anyway. We didn't need the president to tell us. Often, we don't feel so good. We go shopping, we feel better. It's just how we deal with things. Um, you know, there's a big billboard. Does anybody hear from Coeur d'Alene? Yeah, you know, there's a big billboard that some plastic surgeon has that's always talking about how time can stop. Or there's always this beautiful person, this big face, <laughs> make time stop is generally the message. That if you just get a little tuck here, a little tuck there, a little shot in the lip, you don't have to look so bad in the mirror anymore. It's a huge part of our culture. You know, everybody, people didn't used to look like this. They all do now. I think it's so weird. But it's a part of our um, total worship of this youthful look, this idea that um, somehow youth can be perpetuated. I mean, forgive my pronunciation, but Ponce de Leon was looking for the fountain of youth when he landed in Florida. Right? It's not so modern. We've been going at it forever. Um, so our denial of impermanence and our denial of um, what we call suffering is a huge part of what contributes to our unhappiness. <laughs> huge part. So let's talk about that a little bit. Um, first of all, we need to define our terms. 
So I looked up impermanence in a regular dictionary, and the definition is not permanent. <laughs> okay. So then I looked up permanence, a noun, the state or quality of lasting or remaining unchanged indefinitely. The state or quality of lasting or remaining unchanged indefinitely. That's permanence. And that's very close to the way the, um, that we use it in Buddhism. When we're talking about impermanence from the Buddhist point of view, we're talking about the fact that the, the quality of something changing moment by moment by moment by moment by moment. Moment by moment by moment. So the opposite of this idea that the state or quality of lasting or remaining unchanged indefinitely. So one way to actually begin to think about it, even in its more subtle terms, is uh, like none of us woke up this morning and looked down at our body or looked in the mirror and said, oh yes, this is, I, I feel permanent. None of us would say that. We know better than that. But if we think about, um, like just right now, tuning into your body. I mean, we think it's the same body right now that walked into this room 10 minutes ago. We don't have any doubt that it's the same body. But think about the processes that are going on this very minute that we are completely unaware of. Our blood is pumping. Whatever we had for breakfast is doing something in our stomach and may have moved into our small intestine at this point. Whatever we had yesterday is moving through the lower intestine. Water is getting filtered. It's going through the kidneys. Drip by drip, the bladder is filling up. We're breathing. Oxygen is entering the bloodstream, breath by breath by breath. Our skin is getting drier moment by moment as we sit here. I mean, you can list infinite numbers of things that are happening even as we sit. Moment by moment by moment by moment. It's not the same body that walked in here. So it's this kind of quality that when the Buddha is talking about impermanence, that's starting to be what we refer to. So when we say that we grasp at things as permanent, intellectually we can say, nah. But, truthfully, we expect everything to stay the way it was a few minutes ago. And we're shocked when things change. We're shocked at a gross level. When somebody dies, we're just like stunned. Over and over and over. Even when we know they're dying. Stunned when the moment comes. Our new car breaks. Our relationship that was going to last forever didn't. The roof gets a leak. I mean, <laughs> we can count a million things even today that we thought was going to be there. Somebody ate the eggs, we thought they would be in the fridge this morning. <laughs> Things change moment by moment by moment. So that's a quality that we're talking about with impermanence. When we get to um, suffering, this, so but before I say that, the key, this, this impermanence thing is a key principle in what the Buddha taught, and it actually leads us to understanding the second point. 
So I want to talk about the term suffering a little bit. And when we get off of the terms, we'll get back to the relationships of these things. So again, dictionary says, uh, suffering is the experience or to be subjected to something bad or unpleasant. Does that sound right? Yeah. So when we think of the word suffering, we usually think of the things that really make us gnash our teeth. You know, the gross physical pain or gross mental pain those kinds of things. So when we hear that Buddha said life is suffering, then we can, uh, which people, a lot of people kind of reduce the teaching to life is suffering. Well, we think that that's true for the people in uh, Sudan, but not really for me. I'm really sorry for them. But that doesn't have much to do with me. On we go, la, la, la. It's kind of how we feel about suffering, right? Even if we think about it. We can have compassion for those people who are really suffering. Compassion for those people who are in the hospital or whatever. Me, I'm fine right now. On we go with our life, right? So the word that is often usually translated as suffering um, is uh, in English is from a Sanskrit word, dukkha, which has more the connotation of unsatisfaction factoriness. Now what is unsatisfactory? I didn't look that up. But when the Buddha is talking about things being unsatisfactory, it is everything from that kind of gross pain just to the very minor kind of itch in the mind. I want something. I want. I want. I want. Even I can go get it. I want it. That little bit of irritation, not happy with where we are right this very minute, that also is unsatisfactory. So if we look at it in those terms, then you know we can get a little bit clearer about what the Buddha was talking about, that we have unsatisfactory experiences. Even the things that we think are happiness, they don't last. We're here, they're happy here, and then it's gone. We can remember it. Oh, I was happy back when that happened. Gosh, how long ago was that? And where is that happiness now? <laughs> the memory of it may bring another little moment of happiness, actually. That's quite nice. We think we're happy then. But then, gone. Gone again. So that quality of unsatisfactoriness pervades our experience. And if that's all there was to the story, Whatever that first question was, wouldn't that be depressing? Isn't that a depressing and unhealthy? Yes, it would be totally depressing and unhealthy to just think about that all the time. But that's not what the Buddha taught either. So the very kind of basic, like the most fundamental building block of understanding the Buddha's approach to um, uh, explaining our experience and how to uh, transform our lives comes in the Four Noble Truths in which the Buddha explained that um, the first truth, the early um, experience, is of unsatisfactoriness. Our life, all phenomena, is in this nature of unsatisfactoriness. Seeing that, however, he also saw that there were some causes for it. Where does this come from? What the Buddha saw, I think Venerable Simke led the meditation this morning, is that it comes from our disturbing states of mind, 
fundamentally the ignorance that, that we misperceive reality, and out of that comes our anger, our greed, and all the other disturbing states of mind. And the actions that we do, motivated by those things. What he also saw is, oh, those causes can actually be removed. Furthermore, there's a way to do it. That's the fourth noble truth, the path to cessation. So when the Buddha um, and when Buddhism and when Buddhist teachers talk to us about impermanence and, quote, suffering or dukkha, what they're uh, explaining is that um, these are an experience that we can examine motivated by our examination, we can actually explore what the causes are, explore the path to remove them, and then actually be free of them. So instead of being um, kind of a depressing point of view, actually, what these teachings have to, to, to show us is that there's a lot of um, potential. The potential for complete joy is like right here. But we have to know what we're What's in the way of our experiencing the happiness that we want? Yeah. Could you define another word? <clears throat> another word for? Could you define another word? For suffering? Mm-mm. No, happiness. Ah, happiness. Well, happiness, mm, if we look in terms of feeling, happiness is a pleasurable feeling that arise. That's really quite uh, in our experience now, those are temporary and fleeting. They're as changeable as everything else. Um, this third noble truth of the cessation, that all of these things can stop, what the Buddha is teaching us is that there's a potential for us to completely, if we eliminate completely the um, causes of our suffering, then there is a state of mind that is free completely of these afflictions that lives in a state of perpetual joy, bliss, that goes on and on and on and on and on. So is it just the absence of dukkha, or is there something more than just the absence of dukkha? Well, it's too complicated. You know, there's, there are many, many, many layers. You know, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, talks about um, happiness in terms of, um, I think it's three things he talks about. One is that we have, the one we, we associate with quite readily is um, sense pleasure. Now, and that's the one we kind of grasp onto a lot. We think if the coffee is good, we're happy. If the brownie is good, we're happy. If the temperature is right, we're happy. So that is a kind of happiness. A pleasant feeling arises in, in response to those things. But I think we all know, if we think about it very much, that's a pretty fleeting, ephemeral, not so easy to hang on to kind of happiness. But it is pleasure that arises. Another level he defines are those things that bring greater satisfaction to our lives, like you know, good friendships, meaningful work, those kinds of things that um, uh, give a more lasting contentment, in a way, yeah, um, which also have pleasurable feelings that arise in relation to them. They are dukkha still, in that Within each of those things, our relationships end, our jobs end, our relationships have problems, 
our jobs have problems. So they're not problem-free at all, but they bring a deeper level of satisfaction in general. And I think for most of us, um, if we, we feel like if we can find that kind of satisfaction, that kind of happiness in life, then that's kind of good enough. It's the human condition that there's always going to be suffering and pain if we think about it very much. And so if we have a good relationship and we have a good job and you know, we have a nice house, and that's sort of the best we can do. But this other level that His Holiness talks about, that the Buddha talks about, is that we can actually begin to address the causes of our suffering at a deeper level. And even in this life, we can begin to work against antidote the um, afflictive states of mind, antidote our anger, antidote our um, greed, antidote our jealousy, and so forth, and begin to work towards creating greater love and compassion and so forth in our hearts and minds. Working for the benefit of others brings an even deeper happiness. And ultimately, what the Buddha is saying is that we can eliminate these things completely and become free of them totally. And that's a possibility if we differ our minds to it. So does that help? Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about how um, how impermanence works a little bit. Um, or how our denial of impermanence works a little bit. So With this idea that we perceive impermanent things as permanent, would you agree that that's true? Is there anything that you can think of, any phenomena that you can think of that doesn't change moment by moment? Let's just say it doesn't change. Forget the moment by moment. It doesn't change. Anything? No. There are a few things, actually. Space doesn't change moment by moment, they say. I don't have the perception to realize that directly, but I think it on their word. Um, the quality of, the, of uh, emptiness, the absence of true existence, they say is permanent phenomena. But anything that arises due to causes and conditions, anything that comes into existence produced from something else, is subject to this moment-to-moment change. So, what doesn't arise from causes and conditions? Nothing. Space, emptiness, cessations, everything else, every single thing else that we can think of, physical, mental, outside our body, inside our body, throughout the limits of space. We can't think of anything that doesn't come from a cause, a previous moment. Yeah, fine. Well, I'm not, I'm not a physicist, but I heard space actually expands. It's constantly expanding. Mm-hmm. So if it's constantly expanding, it's changing too. 
Yeah, I have no idea what expanding space means. <laughs> I just understand that it supposedly is expanding constantly. Yeah. I believe they're talking about the universe is expanding, but the universe is in space. Is in space. Is in space. But the universe is comprised of, of some physical entities that have to be changing. Yeah. 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 I think Buddha calls it unobstructed space. And so he's referring to like, even if there's this universe expanding, what's on the other side of that edge? Yeah. 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 But anything that we can deal with. And yet, are we shocked every time something isn't the way it was? Before? Yes. Not only are we shocked, are we hurt? Are we furious? Are we devastated sometimes? And yet, the very nature of phenomena is to change moment by moment by moment by moment by moment. And so, if we can spend some time really reflecting on that fact, really meditating deeply on the idea that everything is changing moment by moment, then our expectations of things being something they're not can begin to melt. And if we're not holding the expectation of something to be what it isn't, then our reaction won't be there either. Right? Tracking that? So when we talk about um, dukkha, one of the very first things, there's different lists of how we recognize dukkha, but one of the lists um, of the six sufferings is the first of these unsatisfactory conditions is that nothing is stable. Nothing is stable. Because why? It's changing moment by moment by moment by moment by moment by moment by moment. And we spend our whole lives and many lives grasping at it, trying to catch it, trying to catch it, trying to make it stay, and trying to control it. Any other control freaks in the room? <laughs> if we could just get everything to go the way we want it, life would be good. I would be totally happy if people did what I wanted them to do. Or if people followed my plan trying to fix something that can't be fixed. So the more we meditate on impermanence, and then the more we meditate on this unsatisfactory nature of things, the more we come to an acceptance that this is how things are. Not a discouragement, this is how things are, but an acceptance. So that when the car breaks, when the body breaks, that's really much more personal. <laughs> when the body doesn't do this morning what it did yesterday afternoon, we are not happy because it should. It should work just fine. But the more we come to um, meditate on these things and then and accept them, then the less our afflictive states arise in response to them. 
and the more possibility we have to respond in a different way. So the whole, or not the whole purpose, but, but the, well, maybe the whole purpose of meditating again and again and again and really looking deeply at this first noble truth of the um, uh, truth of dukkha helps us uh, realize that we want to be free of the situation. Inspires us and motivates us to find out, well, okay, if the Buddha said we can be free of this, then how do I do it? And that helps us um, move towards really renouncing our suffering, renouncing our dukkha, and getting on the path to eliminating it completely. So let's look at about what she uses in the book. Why is there suffering and how can we stop it? So again, going to the Four Noble Truths, she says the unsatisfactory experiences occur because the causes for them exist. One causes our disturbing attitudes. And then the actions, as I said, what, what follows from them. So another way to identify what some of the sufferings are is to look at this list of uh, eight and think about them. The first suffering is being separated from what we like. Or alternatively, losing what we like. I mean, losing what we, yeah, same thing, losing what we like. Or not getting what you want. Have we had that experience? Maybe today? I mean, sometimes it's big. And sometimes it's really little. That person ate the last piece of rye bread. I didn't get it. There's a little reaction. <laughs> and that is an unsatisfactory state, right? Getting what you want and then being disappointed. Getting what you want and it wasn't what you thought it was. Right? Everybody's had that experience more than once. Maybe this morning. I got the rye bread but there was mold all over it. <laughs> all the time happens to us. Getting what you don't want. Happened to everybody? Maybe this morning. <laughs> then comes um, birth. Now why would birth be listed as dukkha? Ideas? Yeah. Because it's the cause of death. That's right. That's one of the reasons. And the experience of birth itself. Not that any of us remembers it from the, well, somebody might, from the experience of being the one being born. I know there are people in here who remember it from the one bearing the child. That's not so pleasant either, right? No. But imagine being the one being born. We don't have to think very long about that either, you know? We, okay. Maybe it's nice at the beginning, and then we're starting to fill a space that's not big enough for what we are, and then, then we're kind of propelled out of there like two <laughs> boulders. 
somebody grabs us and with forceps, who knows, there's these big lights, or even you're born in a nice warm tub, people are these days, that's very nice, but still, they whack you. And we're completely, where are we? We don't know. Who are these people? What's happening to me? We have no idea. We don't have the concepts to really know what's even going on for us. It must be terrifying. Not a pleasant experience. And, as Jack said, the minute we're conceived, we are headed completely towards our death. And our life is something that each being cherishes more than anything, more than anything, more than anything. I used to think that that wasn't so true, that maybe there were other things. But the more I think about it, and the more I watch the animals around here, and the more I watch the people I know, the more I see that really our life itself is the thing that we cling to the most. And yet, from conception on, there's no way out of here. There's no other way. <laughs> there we go. So aging is a part of that. It's one of the sufferings or, or one of the, the unsatisfactory conditions of cyclic existence or of our lives. It starts, again, from conception. It starts to look really bad around 50, 60, 70. You know, then you start to really get it. But it starts even before that. <coughs> Sickness. Completely out of our control. We can run marathons, we can do as many Ironmans as there are in the world. But something goes wrong with the body, nothing we can do about it. Medicine is improving all the time, and we are very fortunate to be born at this time in that way. And yet, sickness comes, unbidden. Death, and then ultimately, we have the body and mind that is subject to all these things. So that's the list of, one of the lists of how um, our lives or our beings, our existence in this cycle of existence is unsatisfactory. So again, we can think about this and get really depressed. Or, what I, what Pema Chirpin is another, uh, another Buddhist nun said, somebody finally told the truth. What a relief. You know, we spend so much energy in denial about all of this and trying to be better and look better. And even we don't look so, you know, even we're sick, we try to look better. Or we, you know, we're always trying to, to live up to some idea that things should be, we should be. <laughs> The world should be, you should be, different or better than it is. And once it's better, it stays that way. If we have a moment of achieving, just in it only lasts a moment if you ever get there, we have a moment of achieving that thing where we think, oh, I have it, I have it, I have it, it's gone. So instead of spending our energy doing that, our opportunity is to, to really reflect on this and go, wow, this is really true. And so, in the short term, it makes life a lot easier to just accept things. Much easier. The resistance goes down, the um, emotional reaction goes down. And as I said, we then have a clearer mind in, in which to actually deal with the situation. It also helps us make our lives more meaningful. Especially thinking about the permanence and death. You know, if we keep 
aware of the fact that our time is short. We have no idea how long we actually have. We could die this afternoon or we have 40 more years. We don't know. 80 more years? Not me, but somebody. If we keep that in mind, then it helps us align our daily activities and align our mind with our principles because we realize we don't have much time to mess around. Makes your life much richer. And then meditating on both of these things, as I said, really helps to motivate us to um, find out what are the solutions, what are the ways to live with a more joyous mind. So those are the advantages. Meditating on impermanence leads, according to a sangha, it's one of the great um, Indian sages who really classified a lot of the Buddhist teachings, according to a sangha and also so logicians, Dharma uh, Kirtan, meditating on impermanence leads to our deeper understanding of dukkha. Meditating on dukkha leads to a deeper understanding of the nature of reality. And that's the topic of next month, so I'm not going to go there. <laughs> Copying out there. So I wanted to just share, we'll open this up for questions in a minute, but I wanted to share a couple of meditations that I have found really, really helpful uh, in thinking about this. This is also the source of all sorts of meditations, but he talks about the gross impermanence and how we can get more, more um, accustomed to it. Just by thinking about um, the impermanence of things that are observable in our surroundings. So we start with thinking about our own body, thinking about how the body has changed from the time we were baby to now, to the future. Like we didn't wake up one day at 14, we're suddenly teenagers, and it happened. Where, when, can we find a moment? You know, start to analyze, when does those changes happen? And through that analysis, we can begin to see, well, no, it has to change moment by moment by moment by moment. So these are the kinds of things you can think driving in the car on the way to work. Things that you can just certainly do during meditation time, but also do during, during your daily life that help bring this idea of impermanence more uh, fully to our mind. We can think how an individual's, somebody else's complexion or physique or health or all of that changes over time. So we can think about everybody we know, everybody we have known over a period of time, how that change has come about. We can think about um, internally how our feelings change. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. This is a more subtle examination. But just paying attention. Oh, well, I was happy. No, I'm not. I'm miserable. No, I'm not. Changing, 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 changing. So this awareness makes us not grab onto them so tightly because we know we can't hang on. And then it's really useful to think about how um, the different disturbing attitudes arise. Angry this minute, irritated that moment, happy that moment, coming and going. So all the different parts of, of, of our inner world, our self, 
watching how it changes, changes, changes are all really useful meditations. And even meditating really very seriously and strongly on our own death. Imagining our own death, imagining even the corpse decomposing. It's interesting. Interesting meditation to do. And then, um, then meditating also on the outer objects of change. So how the weather changes, how the trees change, how the mountains change, how buildings change, how the city that we know has changed, how it changes day to day. So all of these are really um, rich reflections that help just make this one little point clearer and help uh, lead to greater relaxation, greater happiness, really, because we're not clinging to someone else. Useful. Yeah? So, questions or thoughts? Well, to say that the only thing that doesn't change is death and taxes. Yeah. So I'm starting to meditate on taxes. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, taxes change. Taxes change. Taxes. But they never disappear. <laughs> taxes change. You don't have to pay them. You could do the alternative. Yes, you have an you have a choice. You have a choice for taxes. <laughs> Um, you know where I got I got them from a wonderful book called Terry, what's it called? The Buddhist Science of The Inner Science of Buddhist Practice. Um, I don't know where else to look for them in that kind of list. But I have them, I can email them to you. Um, no, they're not on Venerable Children's side. She taught them, she taught them when she taught the mind, uh, um, for establishment of mindfulness, she, she taught it from this, but it's not laid out, I don't think, that clearly. But I can email them to you. It's interesting in that study, um, from that particular book, what he's, he notes is that in the general long run, which, you know, the text that we mostly study, this emphasis on impermanence is not so great. And yet, in the Theravada teachings, um, the very foundations of, of what the Buddha teaches about phenomena is that they are impermanent in the nature of dukkha and um, empty and selfless, right? Mm -hmm. so, so it's very, very important, but it's not emphasized so much in the structure that we usually have. So this is the only place that I know of that I've, I've found them, but they were really helpful in understanding what we learned in the long run. Give me your email, I'll send you. In spite of the fact that, you know, we can intellectually accept, although it's, we intellectually accept it, but it maybe doesn't reach us down in our heart that everything is impermanent, uh, what about the Dharma? You know, if we want to grasp onto something that is unchangeable, does the Dharma ever change? Or is, is the Dharma always there as something we can hang on to? Well, I think it depends on how you use the word Dharma which has many different meanings, and I'm not scholar enough to know what many of them are. I mean, one definition of dharma is simply phenomena. So yeah, it's changing, changing, changing. But the ultimate nature of phenomena is its emptiness and inherent existence. That is not changing. That's a permanent phenomenon. And so we can't grasp it 
but we can realize it. And if you mean by Dharma the teachings themselves, yeah, it also changes. I mean, what the Buddha gave, they say the Buddha gave 84,000 teachings to lead us to understanding the nature of reality. So they're all pointing in that direction. And we are extremely fortunate to have been born at a time and in a place where those teachings exist. They still exist from over 2,500 years ago. That's amazing. That's amazing right there. But there's been a pure lineage of practitioners that have passed them on, both experientially and textually. You know, it's not just data that people have really lived them and realized these teachings and continue to teach them. This is amazing. And there will come a time in this universe when they no longer exist. It's predicted and simply because of the nature of change. It's inevitable. But as long as we keep, keep creating causes to be reborn in a situation where we can meet them again and again, then we'll be able to apply them. But the reality doesn't change. That's all. Yeah, the reality doesn't change. Yes, that's right. That's There's right. not like they will go They'll away, go away and that's the end of it. <laughs> right. So, yeah, that's right. Change and come back. Yeah. The nature of reality is emptiness. Is that what we're striving for? Mm-hmm. What we're striving for is to understand what that means. To realize it. Yeah. To realize it experientially, and um, it is a profound topic that I. I'm not qualified really to teach on at all. But what I can share is that um, underst- deriving really from our understanding of the permanence then in Dukkha, what we can see is that although everything appears to exist with its own entity, its own essence, this building looks like it's solid, real, and radiates buildingness. It's a meditation hall. This body <laughs> radiates to Chinchini. There's a person here. But if we analyze even a little bit, what we can see is this building actually didn't arise whole in the middle of this meadow. It came from causes. It came from Yes, it came from down the hill, not so long ago. It's made up of all these logs. Where did these tre- I mean, these were all trees at some point. The trees were all seeds at some point. The seeds had to have been watered by sun. I mean, had to have been watered with rain. They had to have had sun. There needed to have been a logger. There needed to have been a person who conceived of building this thing. There needed to be concrete pourers. There needed to be concrete. There needed to be all of these things. And all of these things are came together to make this building which is still changing moment by moment by moment by moment by moment by moment by moment. So so if we look even at that level of how things arise dependently, we can't find an essence that is this building. All we can see, which we don't see with our eyes, (laughs) we have to see with our um, analysis, is that this building does not exist in the way that it appears to us. And that's true of everything that exists, including us. But our habit since beginningless time is to see things, I mean, things appear to us in that solid way. We cling to them in that way. And in the clinging itself, 
we create all kinds of difficulties for ourselves. So that is a very short, tiny window into a very complex topic. But, as I said, that is really what all the teachings of the Buddha move us towards, is realizing that. And when we realize that, when we're free from the um, delusion that does not understand that, then we are free of psychic existence altogether. And that's that state of bliss, nirvana, of peace. That is the um, truth of cessation that the Buddha taught, the third noble truth. Did you reach that point? Is that permanent? Mm-hmm. Or is that always changing too? Is that permanent state of bliss? It is also changing moment by moment if you look at the consciousness. So if we talk about like a Buddha's mind, we talk about uh, the conventional nature of the Buddha's mind, changes moment by moment by moment, but the ultimate nature of the Buddha's mind does not. Same with us. The conventional nature of our mind changes moment by moment by moment, but its ultimate nature being empty doesn't change. So I just wanted to share for people who want to read more about emptiness, there's a terrific book that's really for beginners like us called Introduction to Emptiness, and it's by Guy Newland. It's a paperback, and it makes the concepts not... You can't, realizations are a different thing, but the concepts are made quite clear um, for us who feel confused. So, Introduction to Emptiness by Guy Newland, and I'm happy to write it down for anybody. And the topic next month is that also. I think Venable Children's back by then, I don't know. Uh, But next month's topic is selflessness, actually. Selflessness and emptiness, do they have the same meaning? So, should we teach you next And this chapter is actually quite clear, too. Yeah. 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 I just thought I'd share that. I think um, it's interesting that the, these two subjects go together, um, uh, suffering and impermanence, because I think when I found Buddhism, I was so, like, a, I feel so connected to the idea of suffering but I don't think I understood that it was possible to stop it, <laughs> that yeah. it was impermanent, you know? Yeah. I was like, well, like, I really understand suffering. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> right, and it's always going to be like that or something. Um, thinking about it as being impermanent and almost suggesting the, end, the, the possibility of the end of it was really optimistic. And yeah. I think it's key to hold them together. Yeah. Yeah, thanks, Jack, for emphasizing that. Because it's really true. It's really true. As as another one of of my teachers has said, how masochistic would the Buddha be teaching? (laughs) Would the Buddha be teaching suffering? If that's all there was to it, we may as well all go to the bar and just have a good drink. (laughs) But no, that's not the point. That causes me to suffer when I do this. Yeah, that causes us to suffer too. And if there was no way out, why not? But, but, you know, the great hope that the Buddha taught is that there, that there are causes, and these causes can be addressed. They can be addressed ultimately, removed completely, and they can be addressed right now by applying the antidotes 
that they're taught to, to even do them in the short term. You know. Not get them from the root, but, but get them right now. Just begin to mitigate them, minimize them. Yeah. Is it possible to think of it uh, as impermanence, dependent arising in karma, are all connected? So if we understand and accept things change, that's good because if we leave, for instance, the eightfold path, like speech, like matter, like job, we, through karmic action, can influence those changes so that there's a positive outcome for us and for others. So impermanence is due to dependent arising. That's a good thing because by karmic action, we can have a positive outcome. We can die a better person than we were born, and we can have a next life that's better than this one, and we can affect that in terms of ourselves and others. It's a possible thing like that. Yes, definitely. Yeah, very, very clear. But it, when impermanence there, impermanence dependent arising in karma all interrelate. All interrelate. <coughs> I mean, none of it works if it's not impermanent. And none of it works if it's inherently existent in the way that it appears. Because that all looks solid and fixed. But because it's changing moment by moment by moment by moment by moment, everything is possible. Everything. Okay, so we have to stop. But let's take a few minutes to just um, kind of meditate on any of these ideas that you might want to take home with you. dependent arising in karma, what we'll do is dedicate all the positive energy that we've generated here. Realizing that we have created a lot of positive energy in our own minds, a lot of merit. And we can direct that merit towards our own awakening, to fulfilling our own potential completely. And with the aspiration to be able to um, make that opportunity for others too. So we have a dedication uh, recitation that we do quite regularly. That's on page 28, I think, in the blue book. Is that right? 30. Page 30, maybe? 30, yeah. Page 30. So we'll do it. Due to this merit, may we soon attain the awakened state of Guru Buddha that we may be able to liberate all sentient beings from their suffering. May the precious Bodhi mind not yet born arise and grow. May the born have no divine but increase forever.
should say in response to Elka's question that um, I didn't give my source, but the, um, these meditations on impermanence come from a Sangha's um, text called The Learner's Level. Whether that's available in English, I don't know. 